Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Chris. I'm an elder pastor here at Resonate. I'm glad you're with us this morning. Uh, and uh, given sort of how our Christmas Eve service works, uh, this is sort of my last sermon of the year. Uh, so it becomes, in, in some ways, a de facto Christmas sermon, which I'm, I'm happy about given the text we have today. I think it sets up well uh, for us. But uh, with this week comes um, a lot of excitement in my household. Uh, there's presents to be unwrapped. There's toys to be opened. And uh, one of the toys that's always a hit uh, with, I think, all three of my kids still uh, are Legos. Uh, Legos are certainly just all the different kits. And uh, as they get opened, uh, sometimes I get invited into that process to build with them. But sometimes they go off on their own and just want to do it themselves. And they'll end up going upstairs, taking a Lego kit with them, starting to build. And sometimes they come back down after a little bit. And they bring what they have with them. And um, it just doesn't look quite right. Something looks a little off. And at some point, it's, it's easy to tell that maybe a few steps back, uh, they, they missed a page or used the wrong piece or something along those lines. With a little investigation, sometimes it's not hard to tell. And the responses are usually varied or sometimes even sequential uh, to what happened. First response is usually directed directly towards the Lego company itself. Uh, so it's, why did they print the instructions that way? Or why didn't they bag them in different categories as opposed to how they bagged them when they gave it to me? And then the next is sometimes some ownership. Oh, I messed this up and now I'm so frustrated and sometimes it's like I don't even want to keep building. I just want to give up. But then it usually kicks in of going, well, maybe I can salvage this. And, and maybe if I just keep building upon the thing that's already a little bit off, maybe, maybe it'll, it'll eventually look out, look, turn out looking okay. And so the, one of my kids will keep just building on the thing that's already a little bit off and, and continuing to build and build even though it never really looks much better. And then lastly, there's sort of the finally sort of owning and admitting that there was a mistake made. And then we take the time to deconstruct the piece and go back to where the mistake was made, find the page in the booklet and start again from there. And perhaps this is what this Christmas time, this December has felt like for many of you. That back at some point, some point in your past, some point in the last month, maybe even the last year, whatever it may be, that something went amiss. Something went off. And at your end of the year and you're here and you're saying, you know what, this is, maybe it's a, a marriage, a you thought this would be um, a year that you finally are free from addiction. You're finally free from your real struggles with depression, whatever it may be. You thought there was going to be something different to overcome some obstacle that you're struggling with, whatever it may be, but something has gone wrong. <laughs> and you come into December, you come into the season, and you realize that you can't fix it. And there's different reactions when we all enter into the season. Sometimes we're mad at the creator, right? Just like getting mad at Lego. It's not my fault. It was the circumstances. It was everything else external of me that has caused this. It's not my self-inflicted wounds. It's, it's God who ordains all these things to happen in my life. It's his fault. Perhaps maybe we try to just continue on. Right? If we could just uh, grin and bear it, we can continue to build upon what was already there. We just push through the holidays. If we'll just get the cookies made, we'll send the cards, and everything will just be better. We'll just listen to enough Mariah Carey to make it better. 
But with every step, as we try to force our way through, we're just piling more on top of the already crooked thing that's built. And from afar, it might actually look okay. But you do a closer inspection, and you realize that things are still amiss. That the, the broken things of the past are still there, and everything has only become that much more crooked and broken on top of it. And perhaps, in so doing and responding in these ways, perhaps we're missing out on Jesus himself, meeting the real Jesus, letting the one who actually does the work of restoring and healing and saving what is broken and amiss and a mess, the mess we've made often because of sin in our lives. Perhaps we miss the real Jesus in the holidays because we're just trying to, trying to look anywhere but Jesus himself, being born for you and me, who came into this world to take what we've messed up, where we've sinned, where we've gone amiss, and to heal it and restore it and repair it and bring about salvation at Christmas time. And so today's text, as we continue in this book of Matthew, and we're kind of wrapping up the sort of three Christmas messages in today's text, we're going to look at three different sort of characters or groups of characters who are introduced to us, who all have different reactions to this newborn Jesus in this moment. And I think we'll walk through and identify who we are in the story. So we'll be in Matthew 2, starting at verse 1. We'll go through verse 12 um, in, our, in our reading today. Verse 1, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem at Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold... Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, for you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least amongst the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. When Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. They fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they who are the three parties that we encounter in the storyline that aren't Jesus. Paul's another group that's actually two parties in one. The chief priests and the scribes, yeah. So you have three different groups and different reactions to Jesus. Let's open with the Herod's statements. It says our first verse. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Now remember what we said about what gospels are. The, the, the term gospel was not new to the New Testament. It was a term that was used in, in Greek and Roman world about a, a king, uh, so a Caesar that was born, um, a Caesar taking a throne, um, so taking his position as the Caesar, or a major military victory. These were all heralded as, as gospels, as good news about um, this king or the kingship or their victory. And so this is a pronouncement. 
this book. The, 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 what Matthew is after is this pronouncement. And he starts here at the birth of Jesus, and he points out that there's another king already on the throne who's not the dad of the king that the book is about. And so it's already introducing some tension to the story because Herod is a king, at least at this time. Now, we know, what we know of Herod, Herod has a tremendous amount of wealth and influence. Um, he controlled a lot of trade in the area um, and was able to basically curry a lot of favor with Rome uh, to earn this position of king. They basically let him kind of rule over a people that Rome kind of found stubborn to begin with. And um, he's not a Jew. He's an Edomite. He's a bit of an outsider to the storyline. But would rule over the Jews. He paid for a lot of uh, infrastructure work, kept them relatively happy on that front. But he was always an outsider. He was neurotic and paranoid. Um, he uh, has, was known for being quite paranoid. We see it in the story. Uh, verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. So he gets troubled uh, and had a long history of killing anybody that seemed to be uh, a challenge to his thronship. Uh, and so not only because we don't know what Jerusalem knew at that moment, all the people get troubled too. Uh, and so uh, we don't know if they're troubled because of Herod. And uh, he killed many people, including his own family members, to maintain uh, his throne. Uh, and we will see as the story goes on, um, the Magi, uh, when he makes statements like, hey, I want to go worship uh, this, this baby, uh, we will find out that the Magi don't go back to him to tell him this piece of information uh, because they're warned in a dream. And then as you continue reading through chapter two, eventually Herod basically tries to have all these babies killed. Uh, so we know that his statement about wanting to go worship the king is not there. Um, he is definitely interested in maintaining his power. And so he desires to maintain his seat. He is concerned about maintaining, keeping his power over Israel. He has no interest in sharing his power with anyone else, anybody else coming to the throne. Herod is, uh, in a lot of ways, like the steward of Gondor. Uh, so if you really want to get into nerdy Lord of the Rings references, um, here we go. Um, and he actually acts a lot like this character. So Denethor II is the steward of Gondor. Um, in the movies, he's a little bit different than the books, but that's okay. We're going to do the movie version where he's super negative. Uh, and so in, in, the, in the movies, he's in charge over Gondor, um, and he's kind of um, a steward. He's not, he's not the true king. He's not the, the, the king and the family line that should be in charge. And at some point, Gandalf goes to him to tell him that there's been this vision of this white tree and this battle is about to show up to his town. And Denethor says this, Word has reached my ears of this Aragorn, son of Arathorn, and I tell you now, I will not bow to this ranger from the north, last of a ragged house, long bereft of lordship. So Denethor, who's managing the kingship, hears that there's an actual true king that's, that, that exists, who's going to be reestablished on the throne, and he says, I want none of it. I do not want this Aragorn to take the throne refuses to bow altogether. That Herod utterances will certainly play that out as the chapter goes. Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now the word magi, magioi, uh, gets translated as wise men as well. They would have been um, in uh, a lot of, particularly the eastern cultures, um, would have been philosophers and theologians 
astrologers. They would have studied the stars really well. They would have been magicians and sorcerers in a lot of ways. They were often very influential and wealthy in their cultures. And so um, you have these individuals. But if you are a Jew listening to the story, they are the worst of the worst. Because at some point you read the law, and the law uh, seems to have some pretty negative views on a few professions. And one of them is exactly the profession that the Magi have. The law has really harsh um, um, statements around sort of sorcery, around looking at um, idols and, and, um, and divination and some of that kind of stuff. And so uh, the Magi represent almost the worst of the professions that the law ultimately condemns. And yet here they are. And they're entering into the story. And they come from the East, uh, which, once again, uh, the East, if you sort of know your motifs throughout the Old into the New Testament, the East often stands for Babylon. Uh, so, um, and once again, I think Matthew's doing, this is extra for you. I think Matthew continues to do some incredible work with the book of Genesis. And as we continue to have these parallels right from the get-go, as the book of Genesis goes at the beginning, eventually Cain, and eventually Lamech, and eventually Babel, all this moved towards the east. And it's like this downward spiral as humanity gets worse and worse as the east. And then we have the birth of Jesus, and the very first people that show up come back from the east. But that's just, that's extra for you. And so they show up, and these are legit outsiders in the story. Like if you have Jewish sensibilities, birth. And what may be going on? And, and, but they come and what they say make a king be the one that they should expect. And I would argue there's definitely some speculation and guessing here, but I would argue that they know their actual Old Testament, even just a small fragment. Of it. Because at some point, there was a Babylonian prophet, one of their own prophets, maybe a thousand years before this, who came to town, who came to Israel, and he was hired out, his name was Balaam, he was hired out by one of Israel's neighbors to show up to town and to prophesy against Israel. That was what he was paid to do, to go, hey, Israel, you're the worst, here's why destruction's gonna come. Balaam comes, and he's like, I can't do that. Like, what, what God is telling me to say to Israel is only good things, and, and, he, and he does, he prophesies these positive things. This Babylonian prophet, and one of the things he says, Numbers 24 is where we find the whole story. He says, I see him, but not now. I see him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down the sons of Sheth. Edom, which is what Herod is, Edom will be dispossessed. Seir also, his enemies, shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly, and it continues from there. So could it be that Balaam could have easily gone back home to Babylon, have recorded, as prophets often did, recorded his prophecies to the Israelites. And at some point, these wise men, who would have been steeped in their own people's tradition, go, hey, our, our prophet said something about a star rising. And our prophet said that when this star, when this event happens, that a king is, there's a scepter, there's a king and be born in Israel. And could these wise men just know their Bibles? Even Daniel could have brought this to them. Daniel would have been also an, a, a candidate because he becomes a ruler over um, really probably what is the Magi in Babylon and could have also taught them this Magi show up to town and why they say, hey, we think there's a king. Like, where's this king that's been born? Years and years ago. Glowy or there really was a moving star in the sky because the zodiac changes 
houses every two thousand, and it'll change again in two thousand two hundred, whatever it is. And so the whole zodiac sign shifted at that time. We're gonna get into because we don't know. Everything's a speculation. So they come and they expect the son to be born, and they go to Jerusalem, which is where the king is. So at some point, they're obviously probably thinking Herod's had a son. He's the king of the Israelites. Let's go visit him. And that's where they go. Verse 8, and he, Herod, sent them to Bethlehem, saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that uh, they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped. Just for my two cents, how many magi are there? So if you see stories where they show three magi, that's fine. It might have been three, but we just have actually. This, this may not have actually happened, happened after his birth. So there's that. The story or the one to come to Jesus. And they come with joy, great joy, and giving offerings to this baby. Which, once again, if you read and worship the actual king or the magi. And how much do the magi understand? This is always a fascinating question. It's probably very little. There's no telling how much of the Hebrew scriptures they actually understood or knew about. They saw this baby. They have no understanding of the life, death, and resurrection, what Jesus is going to do, what the Messiah, all the things the Messiah was going to accomplish. Yet they're here. And they're worshiping. They don't understand it all. And the magi, the outsiders of the story, the unexpected ones are the ones who respond and worship. And then we get the, the priests and the scribes. Verse 3, and the throne and the king, even though Jesus is born king. When he heard the choir of them where the Christ was to be born, they said, in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. Uh, the chief priests are kind of the, uh, but at this period of time, they were a super corrupt priesthood. The scribes are kind of the interpreters of the law. And that was really their job, the law function. And so that was the Pharisees and then the chief priests. And so what they answer is in one accord. They all agree that, that, that Micah had spoken about this before and that the king should be born in Bethlehem, the same place that David was born. Now they get that right, but do they do anything else in the story? No. I mean, they, they answer the question. They know their Bibles, but that's all. Now, we don't know what all they knew. They don't know how much Herod shared the Magi story with them or anything along those lines. But we do know that they did not go to Bethlehem. And this group, this group who clearly knew something was supposed to happen, this group who would be the ones who would be steeped in their New Testament or their Old Testament, who would know their text, who quote the text back to the story, know their Bibles well, are not the ones in the story who go down to Bethlehem. And as Matthew goes on, we will see these crowds in the storyline. And they'll quote their Old Testaments. They will claim uh, Yahweh as their God. But the, uh, time and time again, what they miss is Jesus. Time and time again, they have these interactions with Jesus. And, and Jesus will respond to them saying, look, you know your texts. You know your scriptures. Yet you miss me. You search in them for these answers. And you miss me every time. And I think that's being set up already by Matthew here. And it's odd enough, um, the, the, the whole point of this passage in Micah 2 is, is dealing with a bit of the unexpected. 
as Micah gets told, as, as, as the prophet goes, he, he starts off his prophecies and he's condemning Israel for all sorts of injustices. He's condemning Israel for all sorts of um, idolatrous practices, all these things that Israel is doing. And that there's this army about to invade them. Uh, it's speaking to Judah. So Judah actually listens to Micah's prophecy and responds. But he's saying, look, there's these. And then Micah gives them hope in the midst of that. It's not a lot, but he gives them a little. Post, post David, but he's saying out of, out of Bethlehem to you. And in, in some ways, I would argue this, this sort of connection back to the David story in this moment of would be the natural response Micah's calling his people back to remember how the story works because when, when David gets chosen, how does that story go down? Who's the king at the time when David gets chosen? Saul, right? Why was Saul picked amongst people? Does anyone remember? Yeah, he's tall, he represents, he has some military victories, he represented a, a traditional picture of what a king actually looked like in their day and form. When David goes... And, and David ultimately gets chosen, how does that play out? Is he even on the scene when his brothers go through, hey, who's really the king here? No. I mean, David's off. so unlikely to be the king. He's the youngest. He's, he's, that's, that's who I want to be king. And starts with God's bigness. Out of lastness comes God. And I would argue Matthew and Luke both sets in his influence. You have Rome with their military might and Caesar's conducting born to insignificant parents in an insignificant town. And he was never much in Judah. And he was out of there. And this same Jesus would ride a donkey into town and not a war horse or a chariot. The same Jesus would be the shepherd of his people, which would be a lowly profession. It's like... It's like if we had an announcement today saying, there's going, not that we have a kingship in America, but there's going to be a king. He's going to be born in America. And he's going to set the country straight. He's going to ultimately bring about uh, the, a, a peace in America that's never been seen before. He will be the ruler of all the people. And he's going to be a gardener. <laughs> and he's going to be born in, no offense to anybody, but Albany, Georgia, or somewhere kind of small, insignificant. It's not D.C., it's not New York, it's not L.A., it's just a town. Herod and Caesar and all these characters, and then Jesus. And it's even possible that these priests and scribes who keep missing Jesus, they, they have so much expectation of what this Messiah is going to be. He's going to come with military might. He's going to drive out Rome. He's going to set up his political system. He's going to overthrow the occupying groups. This is the king. And gosh darn it, we are not going to miss his birth. And if some magi come to town telling us he's been born, there's no way they're going to hear about it before we do. And that's where they're functioning out of. And this third crowd, they know the scriptures well. They would identify as Yahweh's people. But time and time again, they're going to miss Jesus because of what they expect. And in this very story, they miss him as well. So what's our response this Christmas? What's our response to Jesus in this moment? Do we see Jesus as a threat to our own control? That we don't really want Jesus to be Lord of anything? He's, but maybe not Lord. I always think of the story of um, the, the Crusades when knights would go and they would actually baptize the knights before they would go serve in the Crusades. And um, they would baptize them, but they would often keep their sword out of the water 
So the whole rest of them would get baptized as if to say, Jesus, you can have my, my soul, but my sword, this, this war I'm about to go to, isn't, isn't yours. And it's as if to say there's an understanding that Jesus may not condone everything in the Crusades, yet they thought it was worth it anyways. And maybe that's you. You just don't want to give up all things to Jesus. Or maybe perhaps like a lot of things, we, we want the stuff of the kingdom. We want peace and joy and love and all those things that are so heightened at this Christmas time, but we usually want them on our terms. And maybe that's the very problem we're running into. Instead of laying the prince of peace, the source of pure joy, the God of love who defines love for us, instead of going there, we refuse to let Jesus be the king. That all those things that are found in the kingdom, all the things that we so long for, do require us to acknowledge Jesus as king. Maybe we're more like the chief priests or the scribes in the story. Perhaps we're a little too close or too familiar with who we think God to be like, that we miss it altogether. Perhaps it's become so routine, we've gotten comfortable with Jesus. Or perhaps he just didn't line up with our expectations of who he should be. We expected Jesus would fix all of our problems, or we expected Jesus would ease some of our suffering. We expected Jesus would financially bless me. We expected Jesus would keep a relative or a baby from dying, or we expected Jesus would keep my marriage together, or we expected Jesus would take care of my enemies. And in so doing, maybe my suffering, but actually entered into my suffering and suffers like I do. Financial blessings cause us to give it away and that we're more blessed in the death. A Jesus who calls us to love our, to forgive unlimitedly. That is the God that we enter into or that Christmas is reflecting. The unexpected Jesus handed so much of what he's supposed to be that maybe we miss encountering him as he is. Or we like the Magi. And perhaps this Christmas we do feel like an outsider to the story of Jesus. We don't understand a lot. Jesus is still a little confusing. There's a lot of pieces we don't always have together in our heads. Our doctrine may be off, but there's still something that's pulling our hearts. And there's a reason that we're here even today. Perhaps there's some star. There's a message of hope that you've become curious about. There's a wandering and wanting to find answers. And maybe, just like the Magi, maybe for the first time, as Dale Bruner says, by placing the Magi, say that God surmounts racial and moral barriers to his saving work by calling Magi are walking illustrations of God's Catholic grace, called unloved. And to those who were called not my people, I will say you. And Matthew is emphasizing here heavily. Flash for Matthew to tell his storyline. Here's the genealogy of Abraham and David. Oh, and by the way, Rahab, Ruth, and Tamar are part of the story. Here's the God who has come to save his people from their sins, which would have been heard as to save the Israelites from their sins. Oh, and then some Babylonian magi came to the scene, and they were the only ones who worshipped him. It's like whiplash. And Matthew's doing this sort of work to make sure we see this. And presenting this Jesus, the shepherd from Bethlehem, who's going to go on and lay his life down for his sheep and draw in even the most outside people. There's no one too far from God's saving work. Magi from Babylon. And once again, this beautiful reversal of the Genesis story. 
And God has made a way for you, for me, who so loved us, so loved us that he paid for our sins. It's the beauty of the story. And we're invited in to come, let us worship him at Christmas time. And on the flip side, it's sort of the as-you-go part of the story, too, is for us to think through not only who we are in the story, but who our neighbors and our friends and our coworkers and everybody else is. Maybe you have friends that are magi. It's like you couldn't even imagine them coming to the scene and worshiping. They're so far outside of what you would imagine someone walking into church to be, but yet there's good news for them. And maybe you're the star placed into their life to help guide them to Jesus. To tell them the truth, to go, hey, there's, there's this baby. <laughs> and he's the king of the universe. Maybe that's someone for you this Christmas. Or maybe you have chief priests or scribes around you. And they would call themselves followers of Jesus, but the picture of Jesus that they have is so far um, beyond what God actually shows Jesus to be. And their expectations are so far off of how God actually reveals himself to be. And perhaps this is a season to help correct. Perhaps this is a season around the dinner table when people are talking about what Jesus should be for you to go, hold on, that's not the Jesus I see. Or maybe there's Herods in your life. (laughs) who are just stubborn, as we all are at times, and want to stay on their own. And they'll probably tell you all the ways that life is really hard and that they are struggling to experience peace, that they're racked with anxiety, they're struggling with all of these things. But because of the want to control their own lives, it's, it's built a Lego set that using tell him, no, just. But in order to get him, you got to let Jesus be the king. To be a blessing for us this Christmas as we wrap up and move into a time of communion. Let's pray, God. I do pray, and I pray for those who do feel far from you right now. Those of you who maybe have never known you or those that just feel really distant God, you are Emmanuel. You are not a distant God, but you are a God who came here. And God, you might be doing a work bringing someone here or keeping someone here to just hear that message that you are God with us, King born of the universe. And today could be a day of turning and worshiping repenting of living life one way to come and to worship. And so, God, I do pray this morning may it be a day of decision and not that all the doctrines cleared up. I can't imagine the Magi knew a whole lot about that baby that they saw, but yet, God, we know there's a starting point to worship. <laughs> and it's not fully mature doctrine and all the ducks sorted, but it's just coming to you and saying, yes, Jesus, I believe you're my king. And God, for all those who know you, who walk with you, who 
even in their walk, are stumbling, but yet still know you as the king. God, I pray just a Christmas blessing. I pray that uh, this season may we'd, be, we'd feel the, the trueness of Emmanuel. Because God, when you commissioned your disciples, you say that you will be with us always, even to the end of the age, and that we would know and feel your presence with us. That as we remember your birth, we still look forward to, may you bless. May this just be a season of favor, just as Mary experienced. May your favor be amongst your people. Amen.